0: This is Masters in Business
1: with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This week on the podcast, I have an absolutely fascinating conversation. My special guest is Keith Ross. He is the current CEO and chairman of PDQ Enterprises, which is a really interesting, innovative automated trading system and dark pool that has a a novel approach to getting – I think it's novel. I don't know enough about dark pools because much of them are dark, but his description of how they sort of put the auction process uh, in an inverted form to obtain the best price and execution for their clients is quite fascinating. He has been in the front lines of high-frequency trading for a long time. He used to be the CEO of GetGo – Uh, sold for about a billion Ford and night trading a couple of years ago, one of the biggest uh, HFTs uh, by volume. If you are at all a student of market structure, if you're interested in institutional execution, dark pools, HFTs, algorithms, if you're a critic of HFTs as well, you will find this to be an informative and, and fascinating conversation. So rather than have me babble incessantly, Without any further ado, here is my conversation with Keith Ross. This is Masters in Business
1: with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
0: My special guest this week is Keith Ross. He is the chairman and CEO of PDQ Enterprises, a trading and finance firm. Previously, he was CEO of Getco, uh, one of the largest high-frequency trading shops. Keith Ross,
1: welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much, Barry. Pleasure to be here.
0: So, so let's keep start out simple, and then we'll build in complexity as we go. First off, what is high-frequency algorithmic trading, and why should people care about it?
1: Well. High-frequency trading is just regular trading by computers.
0: Instead of humans clicking uh, a mouse, computers handle everything from identifying the
1: trade to executing it. Precisely. And it turns out, I believe it's a a wonderful efficiency for our markets. Trading costs and commissions have come down dramatically over the years. Um, I know there's a lot of concern about the robots taking over the world, but... um, the vast majority of high frequency traders are passive liquidity providers so they are in the market virtually all the time and we can talk about that in a little bit but their goal is to capture spread the way market makers have done for centuries and provide liquidity
0: so here's the here's the pushback on liquidity is always well they it like the banker who will lend you the umbrella mm-hmm. when it's sunny out they provide liquidity when it's not needed, but when things get hairy, well, they just shut off the machines and step away from the market.
1: So, I want to respond to that and say it's actually a myth. (laughs) Okay. Because a couple of folks were out loud about backing away from the market. Uh, The guys who knew what they were doing did not. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is they had very good days. So, there's actually an incentive for them to stay in the market. Sure. With all that volatility and chaos, there's a lot of opportunity. Um. And you know those that are not as concerned about that would argue in 1987 and at other times in market chaos, market makers, specialists didn't pick up the phone. That's the same problem. So you couldn't get to your broker. Maybe you want, thought you wanted to do something, but you couldn't find anyone to take the other side.
0: Again, I'll take the other side. The 1987 day was really a one-off, a down 23%. No one could get through to anybody. Let's talk about the flash crash, which is the modern version. So May 10th, 2010, we saw a 700-point, practically instantaneous drop. What caused that? A lot of people insisted on blaming high-frequency traders for that.
1: Well, they're going to be the scapegoat because, like the specialists in the old days, they're the ones that everyone believes are the operators in the market um, and have that opportunity to either make the market or not. Both cases, the macro environment was very very bearish Mm -hmm. and so the question becomes you know what is the responsibility of the participants uh they took time off in 1987 and withdrew dramatically the beautiful part about the flash crash to me is the following flash dash after a five second pause in the e-mini futures the whole market was able to recalibrate reassess and it was a it was a hard event during the day, but it was over in an hour.
0: Uh, it's funny because I was flying back from Dallas mm. that day, or off somewhere in Texas, and I look at my screen when I landed. I'm like, "That's got to be a mistake." And it wasn't until I got in the cab and started speaking to my office that I found out what happened. We were down a thousand points. We closed down three hundred. Right. Explain to me. So, so that that's the big criticism. Um, in general, there are other criticisms we'll get to later, but I wanna set the table a little bit with what you currently do and some quotes of yours. Let me let me just start asking, what does PDQ Enterprises and PDQ Trading actually do?
1: So PDQ Enterprises is the parent of PDQ ATS, mm-hmm. our broker-dealer. We are a probably considered a dark pool, even mm-hmm. though we believe we operate differently than all the others. We have a unique market structure. We can actually create liquidity on demand for orders. We can consolidate fragmented liquidity. And the beauty of our auction process, which is kind of the key aspect of why we are different, is that we can aggregate people with different time latency sensitivity. So whether you're high speed or- Meaning people
0: who are either very high speed or high speed or normal speed. Correct. All right, and how is PDQ different than your previous employer? Uh, Getco, who is not too long ago sold to Knight Trading, and at the time, I think they still are, is one of the biggest HFT shops in the world.
1: I believe they're one of the biggest traders. They did merge with Knight. Um, I went from the liquidity providing side, which Mm -hmm. we were doing at Getco, when I saw the PDQ opportunity. So the way PDQ works, an order comes to us and we pause it for up to 20 milliseconds.
0: That sounds vaguely familiar.
1: But in that time, we do something very constructive for the order. What we do is we ping our liquidity providers with only the symbol and effectively bring back the question that used to be asked at the post of what is the market.
0: So in other words, you don't say I'm buying 100,000 or selling 100,000. You say, here's the symbol, what's your price?
1: What's your best market? We have a dozen providers that are all responding. We can also include institutional passive liquidity providers. Mm -hmm and we build a book. And once we have the book, we take the instructions from our client to execute the order against the book. So we create competition for every order. And in this pause, we're in position to take speed out of the equation.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Keith Ross. He is the CEO of PDQ Enterprises, uh, a rather interesting Trading Shop, Dark Pool, goes by a number of of different names. Keith, I want to start with a quote of yours and have you comment on it. And it goes something like this, there is nothing wrong with speed in any other industry, it's applauded, it's an efficiency. Discuss.
1: Well, um, one of my favorite examples is your telephone. Back in the day, we had telephone operators pulling cables and plugging them into the wall. to connect you to your call. And today we have cell phones that are mini computers and you can do everything on your phone. Incredible technology advancement, Project. efficiency. I haven't heard, in the early days of, of um, cell phones, there were connection issues, but those have gotten so much better. You know, it's all about how many megabytes of upload right. and download and so forth. I believe the same things happened for s- trading. So. Spreads have gotten tighter, commissions have come down dramatically, the cost of execution has never been lower. Um, I think it was Vanguard in 2010 said, our portfolios, due to electronic trading, have a 1% per annum increase in return. Given the fact that there are pension problems across our whole country, anyone that's involved with a retirement program or has pension money working in the marketplace is a beneficiary of a more efficient market.
0: Jack Brennan, who's now Chairman Emeritus of right. uh, Vanguard, uh, when we spoke with him, he said something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But let me give you the pushback from the other side. Okay. Hey, HFT firms are taking out billions of dollars a year in profit. Trading is essentially a zero sum game. That profit has to be coming from somewhere and it's coming from grandma's retirement account
1: would actually vehemently disagree on almost all points. I would points. hope
0: you would uh, uh, so, disagree. But, <laughs> Tell me why that description is an error. And I sort of have a, a, a foot in that camp. That that
1: right. makes some sense to me. Okay. First of all, let's start with the zero-sum game problem. Mm-hmm. The capital markets are not zero-sum. The capital markets can create wealth, and wealth can be destroyed in them. So I have a good friend bought 1,000 shares of Apple for each of his kids in 1986. He sold it in 2010. He made 25, 30 times his money. Wealth creation. Anyone who's Mm -hmm. bought an Apple product knows Apple stock has gone to the moon. So that's not zero sum. But what
0: happens if he goes to sell it, and Mm -hmm. instead of selling that at $101.50, he only gets $101.45 because someone jumped in the middle of his execution.
1: So there could be that could be an issue. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it is because in the old days it would have been a twenty five or fifty cent big spread, not a nickel. Much bigger spread. So you're
0: talking commission not spread. So in other words the trade off is it used to be higher commissions and and wider spreads. Right. And now the spreads are tighter, the commissions are smaller. And if there's an execution charge that right. finds its way into this, net, net, it's still better for the, uh, the trader? Is re- that, is retail that the has never ahead? had it better. Bill McNabb, current chairman and CEO mm-hmm. of Vanguard, and also a former guest on Masters in Business, he said something very similar. And I, I was more vehemently questioning what mm-hmm. I keep reading and hearing about market structure. And when I get a guy like McNabb saying, hey, you know, this has made our trading costs lower it forced me to at least rethink, well, now I have to take this with a grain of salt because he's got zero incentive to say anything but what what is true, true for Vanguard. So let's move to the other issue I always hear about, which is the front running. Right. If somebody sniffs out what my order is and rather than executing that order, runs ahead of me, buys it, and sells it back to me for whatever, a nickel right. or a penny higher, cumulatively isn't that a huge drag on
1: total returns for everybody in the end it's incredibly small relative to the markets to begin with second of all the person doing that the person the hft that takes out the penny up offer mm-hmm. that's some price improvement for that guy so he's a happy guy
0: the seller is is paying a penny is getting a penny more than they might
1: have I'm just saying that's, that's certainly a possibility that's never talked about, that mm-hmm. it's price improvement for a contra party. Certainly, the sniffing ability is only an educated guess, Right, just the way people used to do in the market in back in the day. So they can't see the order. That's a, that's a myth. And the models understand supply and demand, and they're trying to find that balance between supply and demand all the time. All of a sudden, if there's a big supply, demand, the supply is going to move their price higher. So um, it's much ado about nothing, in my opinion. And what I'll do is I'll say this. Most of the people that talk about that don't understand that liquidity provision is a service. Mm-hmm. Okay, So there to me, there's this mythical idea that when a trade takes place, the buyer and seller have this kumbaya let's hold hands moment and exchange our whatever security is at whatever the price is which is fine at the moment of the trade but one tick later one of the parties has been disadvantaged and when i was on the floor you used to trade with people and you'd confirm and you'd smile and you'd say thank you and then one second later you'd say that son of a gun he just picked me off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right? Because the, the tick went against you. Well, but you.
0: that's after the fact. You know, once the market moves either in your favor or against you, right. hey, that transaction's done. You can't blame the guy that you bought something you shouldn't or sold something too early. That it, It's, you know, uh, after the transaction is done. Right. It's pre-transaction or during the transaction that I think some people are, are complaining about.
1: Certainly, um, the counter-argument to that was explained extremely well in uh, – a book by Kovic, I believe Peter Kovic, uh, Flash Boys, Not So Fast. It was the, the antidote to Michael Lewis.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Keith Ross. He is the CEO of PDQ Enterprises, a trading uh, dark pool, as well as a, a broker dealer. Is that correct? A, an ATS. A, an ATS. He was formerly CEO of GetCo which is now part of Night Trading and is one of the largest uh, HFTs in the world. Let's talk about Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, which I read on vacation and found to be, a couple of summers ago, and found to be an entertaining romp that raised all sorts of questions about market structure. But I uh, have heard that you didn't think it was especially accurate.
1: Well, I actually wrote a review of the book uh, the day after it came out. So I got it on my Kindle and read it electronically overnight. Fascinating story, I'm a Michael Lewis fan. He writes great novels, but it's a novel. So <laughs> the pro- the issue that I have is it's the story of Brad Katsuyama, which is a fun story.
0: Terrific guy, really, another guest on the show. Absolutely. A- endlessly entertaining story is, as told by Michael Lewis.
1: And it helped me dramatically. There's a YouTube interview between Michael um, Gladwell, it's not Michael Gladwell.
0: Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm
1: Gladwell and Michael Lewis, a 70-minute love fest between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And what helped me the most was when Michael Lewis explained, what I do is I find a person I'm interested in and I write their story, which is exactly what he did in the book. My issue is, as a treatise on market structure, He never talked to any of the exchanges, any of the other ATSs, any of the high frequency traders, any of the electronic algorithm people that are in the business. So it's one view from one person and I don't think it's a whole picture of the marketplace.
0: So Lewis and Katsuyama were on 60 Minutes, came out and said markets are rigged.
1: Yes, the markets are rigged and it, it's a perfect headline, it's the perfect marketing way to get your book sold to hundreds of thousands of people. The issue is, if you listen or read the book, what they really said was, it's possible that the execution of an order in the marketplace is rigged. Later on, when Michael Lewis was asked, do you invest in the stock market? He says, oh, yeah, I've owned ETFs for years, and 25 years, my family's always been an investor. So, when the market is rigged, That headline screams, it's a three card Monty game. There's no way you can win. Absolutely untrue. Buy your Apple 20 years ago, you're a happy guy today. So that nuance is totally lost in a 60 minutes piece. Right. The world was in a tizzy. It appeared that the high-frequency guys were making a lot of money. They had a tremendous well, <laughs> 2009, 2010, right. but they're not making that much money anymore.
0: Well, volumes have just completely dried up. and
1: Volumes have dried up. Let me share a quick story around efficiency that I like to tell. Mm-hmm. If you buy or sell a house, 5% commission. When you go to Starbucks and you buy a latte with your credit card, you pay MasterCard or Visa a 3% commission on a $3 latte, Right. so that's 9 cents. If you trade 300 shares of Starbucks, and you're an electronic market maker, they make about $0.03 per hundred. Mm -hmm. So, they're going to make the same $0.09 that you gladly play Visa for your latte, and yet they're going to trade $25,000 worth of stock and take risk while they're doing the trade. Their margins are so infinitesimally small, there's no other capital transaction anywhere that comes close to that type of efficiency.
0: So, my uh, colleague Josh Brown likes to say the people complain that high-frequency trading uh, and the markets are rigged. His response is, the markets have always been rigged. There's always been a specialist. There's always been somebody taking their pound of flesh. At least today, we know who it
1: is. Again, I'll go back to my comment earlier that liquidity provision is a service. If you want to be able to trade and transfer risk whenever you want, someone needs to stand there and take the other side. The way money has always been made in the markets is to capture spread between the bid and the ask. That's done very quickly now, and very scientifically. So. It's not that the game has changed, just the players have changed.
0: So in the last 30 seconds or so that we have, what do you think of IEX? That's the the shop that Brad Katsuyama opened up. Yep. What do you think of their proposal to actually become an exchange?
1: As an ATS, I applaud them and appreciate their innovation. As an exchange, their protected quote, hidden behind the delay, could be very problematic. And my concern is, other exchanges imitate IEX if they start to get market share, and th- we would have the situation of quotes that are not valid because they're being canceled, but no one knows because the, the cancel is going through the speed bump. This is
0: Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. My special guest today is Keith Ross. He is the CEO of PDQ Enterprises, and ATS, Dark Pool, and there are all sorts of other technical terms we can discuss. So earlier we were talking about how market structure has changed. One of the claims about issues with high frequency trading is that it has introduced new systemic risk into the markets. True or false?
1: It's got to be true. Systemic risk is very hard to understand and know. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's always been systemic risk. So, it's not as though it didn't exist before electronic trading. It's just
0: different today, you know. It's just
1: words. a different fashion. Um, I think the regulators act, actually, after the flash crash, with uh, some of the things they put in place, limit up, limit down, mm-hmm. um, attempting to get the venues to synchronize with each other, um, are certainly going to go help us move forward to create confidence in the market structure. Um, but... Systemic risk, interestingly to me, during the crash, none of the listed and cleared futures, options, or stock exchanges had any issues. It was only the over-the-counter trades, mm-hmm. where there wasn't a central counterparty. The central counterparty is, the, to me, the linchpin of creating eliminating systemic risk. And Dodd-Frank, all 700-whatever pages of it, mm-hmm. should be one page. Everyone has to centrally clear their trades, no matter what they are. Meaning su- through some exchange? Through an exchange or a third party, because mm-hmm. then the third party manages the risk. And and they know where all the risk is from all the participants.
0: Huh. That's, that's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about that structure in some um, greater detail. At one point in our history, the exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange, mm-hmm. the other exchanges, were really uh, almost public utilities. They were not for profits. Right. Uh, we eventually ran into trouble with compensation and other issues under Dick Grasso, mm-hmm. and there was that whole digression. What should the proper role of the stock exchange be in in modern trading?
1: Well, let's. It should be risk transfer among consenting parties, mm-hmm. and so. Beside the risk transfer process, which is the matching of the trade, you also want to know that it's going to clear properly. If you're a buyer, you're going to get your securities. If you're a seller, you're going to get your money. So it's the first step in a chain of several events that worked flawlessly through the financial crisis for the listed exchanges. The the issue was in the -the over-the-counter credit swaps and some of those issues. Uh, where everyone became suspicious of their counterparties, required more margin, mm-hmm. and companies that had tens of billions of dollars two weeks later were needing to be rescued.
0: So when I was coming up, we had the Amex, the NASDAQ, the mm-hmm. New York Stock Exchange. Today, there's 12 exchanges, almost 50 dark pools, maybe even more. I, have, I You lose track of 40 them? 40
1: is probably a better okay, target so for 40 now. Okay, so
0: 40-plus dark pools. What about this fragmentation? What does this mean for getting orders executed? I've spoken to traders who've complained they go out to buy five or 10,000 shares. I don't mm-hmm. mean 100 or 500,000. Right. And they get 47 here and 122 there, and it takes a- dozens of orders to get what used to be a simple transaction filled. What does this fragmentation mean for for execution and structure?
1: So t- two, two parts to that answer. Um, one is, it actually is redundancy, if mm-hmm. you look at it a different way. So, a little while ago, this New York Stock Exchange was down for four hours. No one but noticed. No one even yeah. knew, right? So, that's actually a good thing. Yeah. So, you know, we get a star for that. Um, the difficulty with the fragmentation, so the generic answer would be innovation. Innovation is, has come through ATSs, has forced the stock exchanges to compete with each other, again, has driven costs down, taken a lot of people out of the equation. There used to be many more bodies on the floor and on trading. It's so now. It's empty. It's really. It's changed dramatically. You go down to New
0: York. It, it used to be like eight rooms. I think they're down to one room. It, it's a, it's a, uh, that's right. It's a, it's a television front.
1: But here's how you solve that problem. If you have a structural pause that can do good things for the order— at PDQ, we can consolidate orders from other venues.
0: So let's talk about that. So the the complaint mm-hmm. that some people have raised about IEX, Katsuyama's shop, right. is that they introduced a speed bump. It's eight miles of coiled fiber optic
1: cable. 36, whatever it is, uh, right. Right.
0: So that, that introduces, a. am doing this off the top of my head, about a 350-
1: Microsecond Microsecond
0: delay, delay so right. that nobody is disadvantaged by faster speed. It's still crazy fast, right. but that prevents what we talked about earlier, the front running, the picking off orders. Your 20 microsecond it's delay. It's actually milliseconds. Milliseconds. So, so that's a long really time a,
1: uh, okay for the high speed guys. Uh,
0: right. So that's, an, that's a longer delay, in other words? Yes. All right. So this is a 20 milli as opposed to 350 micro Correct. second delay that similarly forces everybody uh, with no. the speed advantage? No. Or you're going to them on the delay and making them compete for the order?
1: We reverse the flow. So, IEX, all they do is, it's a speed bump for people to get in and out. It's, it's like a turnstile at a door, right? right. Everyone has to stop and go through the turn, turnstile. They've made an effective business out of convincing people that that's helpful. I think it's more helpful if you take that pause Share the symbol only. This is an incredibly important part of the equation. Not the volume, not the price. Not the side, the size, or the price. And ask that question where is the market in Apple? The high frequency folks, the providers, the institution, anyone who wants to provide liquidity then has to respond with a committed order. That committed order is aggregated into a book. And then that book is used to get to
0: pick the best. Price and size for your client. That sounds like a really interesting innovation to deal with questions of, of structure and fragmentation. You're actually taking advantage of the fragmentation.
1: Well, we're consolidating it in this process. And interesting to me, I mean, I think it's somewhat ironic that this process replicates the way the floor used to work or the way an active pit would work in Chicago, let's say.
0: So let's talk a bit about order flow. What do you think about the, the payment for order flow? That's been a, a somewhat controversial issue.
1: I have no issue with it, and let me explain why. Okay. Uh, just over a year ago, conference in New York, five different buy side, um, excuse me, five different retail brokers mm-hmm. on the dais talking about their experience with their wholesalers. To say it was a love fest is an understatement. Really. Every single person, this is Schwab and Ameritrade, and um, I'm trying to remember some of the others, Scott Trade maybe, wasn't interactive brokers, but a who's who of retail mm-hmm. said, Here's what our wholesalers do. They help us build our infrastructure. They The metrics that we track with them in terms of percent price improvement, quality inside the spread. Uh, quickness of response, number of trades that they don't fill that get sent out to the marketplace. The met, all those metrics have gotten better over time. Mm-hmm. This was in, I believe, January of 2015. They're thrilled. Payment for order flow is just a different way of giving that spread capture to the dealer Commissions have collapsed for retail folks. Seven ninety-five, all you can eat on a trade. I mean, it's virtually nothing. You
0: go to a, a website called Robinhood and trade for free. There Essentially
1: you go. Is zero cost, right?
0: I assume it's built in somewhere in a markup. Sure. Well, but, you know, nobody. They will
1: capture the spread on those trades, for sure, which is fine. But to the consumer, it looks like a free trade, which is fine.
0: So so let's talk, I would be remiss if we did not discuss spoofing, which yep. is the concept of cranking out tens of thousands of what some people call phantom orders right. that are never intended to be executed, and then immediately canceling those, which appears to be intended to manipulate markets to some degree. Why in a normal market would we ever need something
1: like spoofing? Why would you ever bluff in a poker hand?
0: Well, you bluff once, but you don't bluff 10,000 times right. in a microsecond. I, I, seems like a lot of bluffing going on. Yes,
1: I'm being somewhat facetious. It's it, One person's bluff may be another person's brilliant move mm-hmm. um, or defensive move. But interesting to me that when the commission decided to focus on these issues—
0: And when you say commission, you mean the SEC?
1: The SEC and FINRA both, Mm -hmm. creating rules around these types of events. They have yet to actually define spoofing or layering. But what they did define over a year ago uh, was disruptive trading. And I think that's much easier to focus on because it doesn't necessarily imply intent. So spoofing... Implies intent. I wasn't really meaning to trade. Right. But if you've put those orders in, and there's so many risk parameters in place for you to put those orders in, meaning you've got to have enough capital in case you Behind, get filled it, sure. that you can do the trade, it's a matter of debate whether they're spoofing or not. What's the actual intent? It's really, really hard to define and certainly going to be very hard to prosecute someone.
0: So, if we people who are listening are, are intrigued, as I am, by HFT and algorithmic trading, if they wanted to find out more about PDQ, where's the best place for them to learn? PDQATS.com pdqats.com. We have been speaking with Keith Ross. He is the chairman and CEO of PDQ Enterprises. Uh, If you would like to learn more about this, you can check out uh, the website, pdqats.com. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. Keith, uh, Keith, I want to call you Donald. Keith, um, thank you so much for doing this. This is really fascinating stuff. I know we are deep in the wonky weeds yes. for the average listener, but trust me when I tell you there is an intense audience for this conversation, Great, and I know I'm going to get all sorts of email, one half of which is going to be saying, hey, the anti-HFT guys are you know, vociferous, it was good you had a guy like Keith Ross on, and then the other emails are, are going to be, and, and by the way, the first group will say, and, but you were a little rough on him, and then the other group are going to say, hey, man, you let Keith Ross just get away with murder. You should have asked him. So let me go over some of the questions sure. that they're going to they're going to ask us about. I think at this point in time, most people know what co-location means. Yes. The servers at the various exchanges... Mm-hmm. That people fight to be the closest one to the end of the run mm-hmm. so that there's that little speed advantage of 10 feet at the speed of light. Right. How important are things like co location to HFT firms?
1: Actually, they're, they probably created the whole idea mm-hmm. in terms of doing it electronically. Co location and position in the pit. 25 years ago was also incredibly important. And people would get up at 4 a.m. to make sure they had their spot next to their favorite broker so they could deal with him and trade his flow. So it's not new. It's (laughs) just got a different shape. And it fascinates me that now that orders are done and completed in milliseconds and microseconds, Essentially, the world seems to be displaced by it, where it used to take minutes, if not hours, to get a trade done, and it didn't seem to be an issue. So, so we went from hand gestures to software. To, right, to software operating at high speeds. Many of the venues measure their cables so that everyone has the virtual same distance to the matching engine. That's amazing. So the CME does that, I know for sure. And it's, an eff- it's in an effort to try to level the playing field.
0: If it, you're in the co location well, if you're it, not, you're at a disadvantage,
1: which is why they could charge big rents for those racks. yes and so for the high speed guys, the reason they need to co-locate is they have to compete with each other, right They're sharks fighting over anything that might be there, and they're very worried that if they're too slow, they're going to be the victim.
0: This is a giant arms race is what's what's actually happening yes so let's let's go through some of these other favorite terms okay uh what is packet
1: sniffing? It's an attempt to decipher what's in a message in a network
0: meaning in this context to figure out what what might actually be the size and price of an order right. in order to get ahead of that
1: line it, it's not <clears throat> It's not clear to me that <laughs> you can actually see what the order is, but you mm-hmm. could see that maybe an order is coming so, I was
0: always in the impression that. Since since every – once the order goes into the exchange and the exchange pings out to see what the best price is, once that happens, the HFTs have full access to it. And if they could beat everybody else to go buy the order and fill that at a lower price, they're allowed to do that. They're not the broker, so they don't have front-running rules that apply to them. They're just a liquidity provider, right? and they're faster in getting – uh, if this is available for $0.07 and I'm going to turn around and flip it for $0.08, cents. Right. if they're faster than other guys doing that, they get to pocket that penny.
1: Once it gets posted at the matching engine or at mm-hmm. the, the venue, the matching engine would be actually executing a match. Once it's posted and everyone can see it, I think you know, it's, it's declared it and fair game. Absolutely. Um, I was aware that in the futures world, uh-huh. some folks – we're putting one lots into the marketplace meaning one lots meaning one, one futures contract right so a, the equivalent of
0: one share of stock a very well, small no. order
1: or it's like 25 or 30,000 dollars principal right. amount for a one lot cuz the futures are leveraged
0: and then then going on the other side with a
1: bigger order well no what they did was they'd leave it in the marketplace till they got a fill and at the time the mechanics behind reporting the fill was quicker than changing the quote, so the fill would tell them that the quote was changing.
0: So, in other words, they would get filled before the quote would even show up, and they, this they would is get all that report microseconds. Back. Seconds, right. right. Nobody right. actually knows this.
1: It's except reported the person back that the the gets computer. the report, right? right? I believe that's been changed, sequenced so that it's everyone gets the information at the same time. But there was an opportunity. Oh,
0: I see exactly what you're saying. So if you're filled before the quote moves. You know the quote's going to move. Right. So you have an, an information So you have a chance to. Just because you were executed. And that's right. considered public, so everyone should have access to that. Right. This doesn't get complicated enough for me. <laughs> so so we talked about spoofing. What about quote stuffing, which is a term that I just love. What is quote stuffing?
1: Well, it's an attempt to overwhelm the quote system mm-hmm. so that people can't really understand where the market is. And now, is
0: that considered manipulation, or is there anything I would against I the would rules expect
1: the SEC to use their disruptive trading card, right, and say you were trying to disrupt trading. This doesn't make sense. You know, you're fined or whatever the results are.
0: Do we still see the sort of quote stuffing that was pretty common? I'm away a few years from.
1: Ago? being on the front line the way I used to be at Getco, go mm-hmm. um, Everyone is so fast and so um, on top of their game, so to speak, I would think it'd be extraordinarily difficult now, but I can't say that it doesn't happen. I don't know for sure.
0: You would think if someone is jamming a lot of, of quotes in order to cause confusion in the marketplace, right. that does make sense for the SEC to wanna stop
1: that. Absolutely, and most venues, including PDQ, have limits on the number of orders on the same side in a given security that any one client can send. Right. So that if we see more than a couple orders in one second, same side, same price, same um, customer sending the order. That's problematic. It pops up on our compliance and we can check them out and make sure that they're not going is,
0: crazy. Now, is that going to be an automated interrupt or is that get kicked out with an email to somebody and a week later someone so makes So we're a not call? the
1: broker-dealer of record. Mm-hmm. So it's up to us to inform the broker-dealer and then it's up to him to decide what to do with it.
0: So this won't be stopped at the point of contact. This is, hey, this person is abusing the system and eventually they get
1: kicked out. We have the capability to turn them off. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've our compliance systems are in sync enough that we could if we needed to. Um, we'd prefer to have the broker dealer do it because they know exactly where the client is and what the client's expectations are. And, and they are. have the
0: compliance oversight sure. to, to do that. That that makes some sense. Um, walking away, what is walking away?
1: Well, this is what we talked about earlier in terms of turning off your system. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to share an urban legend. Okay. There was a, a person writing a book. Interviewed a prominent high-frequency trader who said, off the record. I recall this. I promise, off the record, we turned our machines off.
0: During the flash crash. During the flash
1: crash. Um, The reporter decided to put it on the record. Mm -hmm. The world assumed that everyone turned off their machines and walked away and were not making a market. When, in fact, I know a lot of good firms Took advantage, literally they took advantage of the opportunity the and crash. made a lot of money.
0: Anytime there's volatility, if you, so I began my career as a trader, right? The, and one of the things I used to love to do, this is a hundred years ago, and I'm talking <laughs> manually. This is pre-algorithms. Right. I would leave a um, a bid out a quarter or half a point under the market, mm-hmm. and every now and then you,
1: you catch something,
0: you get filled, and it was just quick, you know. Boom, Quick, boom, With one-handed flick, you turn around and sell it at the bid. Hey, I sold 1,000 shares a quarter point higher. It was free money. Right. Now, eventually, that sort of nonsense stopped in the later 90s. Right. But I was astonished occasionally, hey, here's $250 right. for free. Um, I had a friend who said, why don't we write a program to do that automatically? So they tried, and it made some money for about a month, and then mm-hmm. that stuff just kind of dried up. Okay. So I look at that as an early HFT sort sure. of thing, and an arms race where the other side eventually, nobody likes getting picked off for a quarter point, right. constantly at a certain certain point they basically say, you can't do this, or they just figure out, let's look at all the quotes and make sure that we're in the market and not to, now right. if it's a buck outside of the market, that trade gets broken. But a quarter point in a fast moving market, sure. nobody, nobody's gonna care about that. So, um, or walk away from that. So, so given all these things, given everything that we have learned, um, is it's, uh, let me ask this in an open-ended question. There was a lot of sturm und drang and a lot of upset about HFTs a Mm -hmm. few years ago. Certainly, as closer we get to the flash crash Mm -hmm. six years ago, the more Mm -hmm. people were upset. Is it that we've forgotten about the flash crash and these fears have faded? Has the market structure and the oversight improved? Has everybody kind of figured out, hey, this technology thing is going to be here for a while? What's changed in the past five or six years that have kinda made the general outrage over HFT sort of settle down. I, I don't know if I'm asking that question correctly. No, I, th- I
1: think I get it. I mean, it, it has dampened down quite a bit. Um, I think several factors. One is the stock market's much higher than it was five years ago. Okay. It's recovered dramatically. <laughs> so, sure. so people look at their 401k and they don't have to jump out the window anymore. Right. So that, that just in general, that helps a lot for people to feel better about the market. Um, the markets have put in some more rules and regulations, so we expect it to behave better, and I think it has. Um, people are becoming more comfortable. So, five, six, seven, eight years ago, people wouldn't even go online to do banking because they were anxious about security. Sure, people
0: were afraid to buy from Amazon. If you go back far enough, now, I can't. I can't buy some. Put a credit card over the internet.
1: Right now, if you don't do it, you know you're you're not part of the so world in which we live exactly. right exactly so all those things have changed um the process
0: structure gotten better do you think the market structure is less precarious more stable less likely to be subject to another flash cl- crash like event
1: I think it's more resilient mm-hmm. that's a good word the- the difficulty with those kinds of things is they're not gonna be where you expect them. They're gonna be they're gonna Well, we've be seen the, it in
0: the bond market. Fixed uh, no, income no, no, had no. its own flash right. crash
1: type right. of thing.
0: That's really the wrong phrase for it. But you had some really surprising movement in in bonds, not where people expected to see that.
1: What, I, what I've always thought is that There'll be people like you used to trade in the 90s that'll put some bids in below the market because they do want to own it and at a better price, they'll be happy. Right. Even in the bond market. And so, one of the issues at the moment is we have what some of the academics call knife point liquidity. So, everyone's <laughs> around the market. I love a, that phrase. A, t- a tick or two away. Right. Because they understand that's where the market is now and that's where the supply and demand are. But if the market moves a, a handle move or a it. point, right. If it does it, kind of gradually, that's okay, because they can all adjust along the way, but if it happens quickly, they assume that there's some news out that they don't understand, or the model doesn't understand, so they back away, and Mm -hmm. that creates the vacuum. It is going to make sense to some people to say, you know what, I'm going to bid down a half a dollar, down a dollar, down a dollar and a half, and down two dollars, the way the book used to be much more layered, and stay out there until you know, they get what they need. If I get filled, I'm buying at a discount. What Who right. cares? Or if I sell it on the way up, I'm selling it at a premium and there's all kinds of things you can do with that. So, yes, we do have... I still believe the structure, the structural issue is we have to chase the liquidity rather than making it come to the order. Mm-hmm. And that's where PDQ is dramatically different. And it's hard for me to emphasize... The paradigm shift. So, I've got the order. I'm holding it here. You can't see it on the radio, but I've got it in my hand. Right. I want to trade 10,000 Apple. I'll tell you the size. What's your market? You still don't know whether I'm a buyer or seller. Right. Give me your market. All the participants commit to the auction, so they can't run away. They can't front run. They can't spoof, because they don't know what it is. Right. They can't penny. They're competing with each other, so their price may be a penny better than somebody else. They want to give their best price. But they're giving
0: you best bid and best gas simultaneously, right. and it's up to you to, to...
1: To run the auction and find the best price for our client. So
0: that is a big shift from what we typically see when someone goes to execute an, an uh, order oh. out in the normal... Back, back when I was on a level three and you'd see all the market right. makers on each side, you saw a few cents up, you had no idea what the real size was. Right. And if you were trading any sort of size, you would make a rough estimate. Hey, this is going to cost me 10 cents to right. Here's 2,000, there's 3,000, there's 4,000, there's 5,000. That's how I'll get 10 or 15,000 filled within a dime or so of the actual current bid and ask right. price. You guys have turned that on its head.
1: So, we make that flow come to you. Mm-hmm. If you're a natural buyer or seller, The question is, where is the market? We gather the responses and it's committed flow to you, and they have to commit first. So it's not like they get a chance to peak and then run around. Right. So let me phrase it a slightly different way. That's
0: fascinating. That's a fascinating business model. Is there anybody who's a competitor to you for that?
1: Not at the moment. Um,
0: How much of that is patented, trademarked, or we whatever have else some you IP do.
1: protection and some patent protection? Some of the venues. So, Chicago Stock Exchange has introduced the snap auction. Mm-hmm. The New York Stock Exchange is talking about a midday auction for lightly traded stocks. The London Stock Exchange is also now, I believe, executing a midday auction. Meaning, so, why midday? Because they just had to pick a time, they're doing it once a day, it's not an on-demand Got or continuous. But you're
0: on demand, effectively.
1: You send us an order, we will create the auction for you whenever you want.
0: So that's stocks, does that
1: include futures? We're just stocks at this point. So There's any, technical reasons why, but yes, it's only stocks. Any point in the
0: future that you're gonna do bonds, futures, or any other So structurally, vehicle, the other
1: markets um, have some issues that they don't have the ATS functionality. In Meaning, the define world. ATS for people who may not uh, understand. Automated trading system, uh, created by the commission SEC right. in 1998, I believe, to promote innovative and alternative ways of trading. So we act like a stock exchange in terms of matching buyers and sellers, but we're only a broker-dealer and we're technically regulated by FINRA. The exchanges are directly related And regulated to the SEC.
0: And this was reg, I'm doing this from memory, reg NMS way back when? This was
1: reg ATS, it was called, in 1998. Um, Reg NMS was 2005. Okay. And that was a different market structure plan, Mm -hmm. which actually was incredibly effective, achieving the goals that it set out to achieve. Which were? Well, to make the exchanges and orders compete with each other, Uh, and automate the marketplace.
0: I was going to say, some people have said Reg NMS is where
1: high-frequency trading really exploded out of the box. It turns out it was very beneficial for high-frequency trading. (laughs) Little inside story, back in the get-go days, I was there during that period. We were actually concerned that that Reg NMS was going to hurt our business. Because you were
0: going to get more competition.
1: There would be more competition, and the... Price protection and other issues would make it more difficult for us to function. Mm -hmm. We had no idea it was going to be a softball down the middle of the...
0: Right, and everybody feasted, or or so it looks like. Because that was really the Wild West for a while, Mm -hmm. and lots and lots... Uh, Look at Citadel, which started out as a hedge fund, is now one of the larger, if not largest, liquidity providers. So how does a shop... That starts out as uh, Ken Griffith Citadel in Chicago starts out as essentially a hedge fund. How does an enterprise like that suddenly become this giant HFT algorithmic trading shop?
1: So one of the changes that we made at Getco was to understand that we were really a technology shop, mm-hmm. not that happened to be in the trading space. Right. So we shifted our emphasis dramatically to our technology people. Fortunately, all the traders that were running the models understood how important the technology was. And what happened was the, the brilliance of the technology folk was was able to make um, the systems better and faster, and every time you got better and faster, you made more money.
0: So where do you, this is, I just was up at MIT for mm-hmm. the, uh, the Sloan Annual Conference uh, last month. The whole audience were I would say two-thirds were students and I very it was one of the more intense rooms I've mm. ever been in mm. and my sense is that many of these kids are destined for careers mm-hmm. at shops like yours where do you go out and find the the talent the staff where do you guys recruit how do you find the wizards to do what what your stuff your right. technology actually does
1: so we started ten years ago and the team that we started with is principally still with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found folks, our CTO has done the recruiting. We're a very small shop. Right. We just grew from 20 to 28 people in the last year. So mm-hmm. uh, our technology staff is about a dozen. We're not actively recruiting because we're not in the, what I might term as suicidal high speed race. <laughs> We're gonna let other people okay. do that. We have really good technology and we want it to be incredibly robust, but the last microsecond isn't critical for our process.
0: That That's fascinating to me because you spent, so you began your career on the floor way back right. when eventually find your way into HFT, Mm -hmm. and you're there for the the fat part of that cycle. So you were really a witness firsthand. Mm -hmm. What made you stop and say, you know, there might be more money if we step back and try and approach us from a different perspective? How how did you get to that
1: point? So the the founder of PDQ is a fellow named Christopher Keith. Mm -hmm. He's a Brilliant, brilliant mind, 85 years young now. Right. He's the former CTO of the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> okay, so, so
0: he has some understanding he, of he, how the exchange
1: he, works, perhaps? He has a bit of a clue about how <laughs> markets function. Um, understatement of the year, right? Understatement there. of the year. Even in 2001, he applied for a patent for the PDQ idea. Really? He understood that at some point the race to, for speed cycle would end that there would be you know, a physical limit of how fast you could go. Sure. speed of light. Speed of light, and even when I was at GetGo and we were doing better and better and going faster and faster, in the back of my mind I was thinking, you know, there's gonna be some point where right. speed doesn't win. It, it turns out that he, we had a chance to meet him while I was at GetGo, and my partners made a small investment in PDQ. Oh, really, We would that work out? Well, it's, it's doing fine. <laughs> Um, But we figured, at the time, we were thinking that it might be a source for us to get flow for us to interact with. Mm -hmm. Um, We ended up going in different directions once I went to PDQ, but the market structure idea has actually been around for quite a while. And so, some of the folks that think they've discovered new things recently, it's, it's actually... They're just discovering things for themselves. Everything old is
0: is new again. Really. You know, when you describe the time at Getco where there's a sense that, hey, this has to eventually hit a limit, I just had that vision of Robert Duvall in Apocalypse Now Hmm. where he turns to uh, Martin Sheen and says, as if it's a bad thing, you know, son, someday this war is going to end, and then walks off and Sheen looks at him like he has two heads. But really, right. that's a that's at a fascinating moment in mm-hmm. the midst of the high frequency trading expansion. Where, right. well, this has to bump up against the natural limit, and then what comes next? Right. That that's really an insightful thought to have when everybody's making a lot of money, and mm. hey, we figured out a new way of trading, and and. Well, that's, let's that's, see
1: where this goes. That's the way Chris Keith thinks. A step or two ahead of everybody miles else. Miles ahead of the rest of us. Huh. And um, it was fun to get to understand you know, his ideas. And, of course, the process of collecting the market, aggregating the book, forcing the providers to go first was a novel idea, Um But what happens, I believe, is that it benefits all participants, and let me explain why. It sounds like it does. It certainly sounds like it would. So I got excited about it as a provider because I knew there was time to refresh the algorithm and give my best market under circumstances that were defined over a very short period of time.
0: Meaning milliseconds or microseconds? Milliseconds. So longer than microseconds, but still faster than the human eye.
1: Right, exactly. and. I also knew that there would be opportunities where the model could provide substantial liquidity given the circumstances at a particular moment. So, if you're doing a pairs trade, if you're doing a trade of a stock or an ETF against futures and you have a chance to assess the market, run your model, instead of doing 500 shares, you might be able to do 5, 10, 15, 50,000 at a given moment under prescribed circumstances. It's very Interesting to understand how specific that is, and how important it is to be able to respond with size. There may be times when you can't make any market, where the futures market—it's
0: just, just not there. It's the not there. Kind of parties right. aren't there.
1: Or you think you're going to trade Microsoft against Oracle, and Microsoft earnings came out, and the market's going a little cuckoo. Right. Well, we're going to wait. But as you find the opportunities where you can make a better market, and if you have multiple mar- participants who are all gonna have a different flavor of their better market and you can aggregate them together, all of a sudden you're gonna you're gonna to start to find a market that will feel like it used to feel.
0: So so you're a dark pool, which means you're trading pretty continuously. Do you guys trade before market hours and after? Are you twenty-four hours, are you nine thirty to four? How do you We're, how do you do that time wise? Our
1: current trading clock is nine thirty to four. Mm-hmm. We also have a routing business for our clients. So if we don't fill them during the auction, we're happy to send it either through the dark or to a destination that they're interested in. Mm-hmm. We will route before and after the close so we can take an order anytime, but right. we don't actually execute it before and after the close at this point.
0: And you mentioned the New York and London are going to do these by appointment only trades. Mm-hmm. We used to make fun of the illiquid stocks. Right, It's, it's by appointment only. Uh, so from 9.30 to 4, how actively... Executing, are you? What sort of share count are you? Are you guys doing massive shares, or is it a handful of big clients, and you're doing a hundred thousand here and half? A so we have there?
1: about a hundred broker dealer subscribers, so they're sending us flow during the That's day. That's substantial, which is pretty substantial. Yeah, know about anywhere from sixty to seventy five are active on a given day. Mm-hmm. Our routing and executing business combines for a little bit close to one and a half percent of the market. So we're doing like 125 to 150 million shares a day. Mm-hmm. That's combined. The routing actually is the substantial part of the I was business. Say that's
0: the lion's share, although it right. may not be the lion's share profitability wise, but it's right. going to be the lion's share volume
1: wise. Yes. So we're thrilled. <laughs> I mean, when we got to one percent about a year ago, we thought that right. was a great milestone. Um, but that's still
0: relatively small for some of the dark pools out there are are, are huge, right? They're yes. 5 and 10%. The biggest ones. Is that a, is that Well, that might be it? a little
1: high, maybe closer to 3 to 6. Mm-hmm. But a couple of other facets about our auction process, after a trade is made, our TCA reports show that we have very little impact on the market. So you're so not if, moving
0: the price. So we're
1: not moving People the price love a lot, that. right?
0: Institutions love that, I should say. They want to be able to
1: either get in or
0: out without causing a disruption because you never know what they have behind that. They might have another, hey, I got 10 10 million more to go. Try not to wreck the bid, right? Does any of this sound familiar from the old
1: days? Right, of course. Um, One thing that I'm very proud of is when our liquidity providers respond, their average size is 1,400 shares, Okay. way above the average trade size. Right. And in terms of larger trades for the month of february we received about 35,000 trades of over 5,000 shares from our initiators mm-hmm. from the subscribers looking for liquidity and our providers responded this is our daily average with over 135,000 blocks of over 5,000 shares so, so there a lot is lot of this liquidity is getting filled a lot of it may not have traded, but it was there and it was available. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the the providers are on the same side of the market as the order. Sometimes they're a penny or two away from the market, so they may not they may not cross, they may not right. match. Um, but that opportunity is there, and and I think that's the important thing. So, to how share. do
0: you guys get paid? Is it on a per share basis? Yep. What do you guys charge per share? Is that is that public info? Um,
1: I'd love to make it public information, (laughs) and the problem is it's custom. Mm -hmm.
0: So everybody, depending on what they're doing, the size, the frequency, you're going to work out some arrangement on some sort of grid for them.
1: Even more than that. Mm. So once we have a conversation with our client, they're not latency sensitive, they've agreed after PDQ we can route through the dark and end up going to bats. let's say. We can actually give them a sliding scale. Because we're an ATS, we don't have to have one size fits all pricing, which an exchange does. So if you if we fill you at PDQ, we can give you a free fill. Mm -hmm. If we go into the dark, we may have to charge you eight mils. Right. It's costing us relatively inexpensive. Relatively inexpensive, but it might be costing us four or five. We get a little markup for the house because we gotta keep the lights on. As we go through the dark the price gradually goes up. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we send you to the lit market. Our active traders save about 50% of the take fee from the lit market by coming to PDQ. And
0: hence, that's why people like Vanguard and Dimensional are not really that critical of HFT, because to them, there's a cost saving. Absolutely. That that makes a lot of sense. I could stay in the weeds all day. I find this stuff fascinating but I know I only have you for another 15 minutes. So let me get to some of my favorite questions. Great. And uh, we'll we'll see where this goes. So you mentioned in the early days you started, uh, you were on the floor, was it New York or Chicago?
1: I started on the American Stock Exchange and then went to the CBOE floor. And so what did you do before financial services? I jumped into it right out of college. Mm-hmm. When I was in college, I actually had a house painting business that I ran with 10 other guys that were working for me. So that
0: was less latency, more latex and that sort of stuff. I got it. Good for you. Um, (laughs) uh, So who were some of your early mentors
1: in this industry? Um, Ken Langone. Oh, really? I was actually- Home uh,
0: Depot and Langone Medical Center uh, and NYU. InvaMed
1: Associates is the name of his broker dealer. What was it called? InvaMed, InvaMed. I-N-V-E-M-E-D. Uh, I was partners with him um, in the late 70s and early 80s as a floor trader. Right. Um, And he said, I have this idea for a home. I I was never offered the opportunity. It turns out. I don't know whether I what I would have done, but right. I could dream Wait, about you it. You
0: want to sell plywood and <laughs> giant warehouses? Ken, listen, stick to
1: trading. You know, and oh by the way, about? become a multi billionaire. Right, right. right. That it, right. it ends up It's 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 a great should, American story. We should have
0: him on the air one of these days. I'd love to he's Are you still a, in
1: touch with him? Uh, no. And he's a no nonsense A little gruff. But was gr- he always great great that way? Insights. Is that yes. That's yes. his persona. That's, that's his uh, persona. He never
0: he, he calls a spade a spade. Right. That that's pretty uh pretty funny. Any other mentors worth
1: um, mentioning? A trader named John Mulhern was legendary back in the day. Sure. I I've heard the name. He was at Merrill Lynch. Uh, Bear Wagner actually partners with. Is the Englander at one point um, a man who just had a beautiful different perspective on the world. Mm-hmm. Um. Was a extraordinary natural trader if there is such a thing back oh, in the absolutely. day when um,
0: some people just have a feel for what's right. going on and what's about to happen.
1: Um, I also did not know him personally, but uh, followed the career of Bob Rubin, risk arbitrage <laughs> from Goldman Sachs, and of course Secretary of Treasury and other things like that. So. Um, I enjoy reading about people in the business, and... um,
0: So let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books? Fiction, nonfiction, finance, finance. non-finance. So I always get fascinating answers to this question.
1: The one that I decided I want to tout is called The Rational Optimist. Oh, of course. Matt Ridley. Mm -hmm. And for folks that are struggling with the world in which we live and think things are not good... um, his argument is we've never there's never been a better time to be alive you could for look at a ton many, of metrics many reasons. Right.
0: lifespan healthcare amount of wars amount of murders mm-hmm. amount of crime even though these things are on the headlines and we all have more access to it by the numbers it's actually much better than it was even 50 or 30 years ago
1: right so Um, Warren Buffett says, the normal average person today has a much better life than Rockefeller did 100 years ago. I mean, I would agree with that Uh, completely.
0: Relative to someone a hundred years ago, sure, but at the time Rockefeller was yeah he was, was the man the, right. he was king of the hill of course it's always it's always uh, hey listen uh, Louis the did didn't have indoor plumbing but <laughs> he had four hundred still... servants to make his dinner <laughs> right <laughs> that's that's exactly right um, so the rational optimist any other books you you feel like mentioning
1: trying to think of others that uh, I mean some of the market structure ideas and so forth those types of things tend to wander up and down. I mean, some of them are great. Some of them are terrible. Um, So you kind of have to be a little selective there. I'm involved. My wife and I have created a a little foundation called the Raven Foundation. Mm -hmm. It's an education foundation that has a whole uh, anthropology behind it, if you will. Uh So some of my reading is focused in that direction. Um, I remember Reading the biography of um, Peter the Great, very oh, really? fascinating. Um,
0: biography comes up all the time on the mm-hmm. show. People constantly, the I can't tell you begin to tell you how many people have mentioned um, the Wright brothers bio mm-hmm. that just came out. Right, I haven't got that. I, one I know yet. a lot of people yeah. have have that on the Kindle, waiting okay. to uh, waiting to go. Um, so we've discussed all the different things that's changed over the past thirty years. Rather than reiterate that, what do you see shifting over the next decade in terms of anything involving markets and execution? What is the next wave of change going to be? Well,
1: I believe PDQ is part of that in terms of our process of aggregating the market and creating an auction. Right, um,
0: so innovative trading structures are gonna shift the way people get executed. Certainly that's Don't. our hope
1: at PDQ. <laughs> um, it certainly makes you sense should be, to me. You should
0: be the CEO of the company, because you are <laughs> pounding the table on it. But not just your firm, I mean, right. but, but you guys products. have to anticipate where the market's gonna go and how execution's right. gonna change. What else do you see without revealing any of well, your no,
1: secrets? But so the, where do you see this shifting in the future? The markets are still, even though we think we're global, we're always becoming more global. Right, And so, you know, China sneezes and we catch a cold. Those types of intricacies are going to continue to evolve. Do you guys have plans to expand overseas yet? Certainly
0: London is an option and then Hong
1: Kong. London and Hong Kong are obvious options. It turns out that our market structure for an independent non-government uh-huh. firm to get started in a foreign country challenging is very challenging yeah. and so the beauty of reg ats was a couple of guys with an idea could try to spin up a better matching process and if it hunts we can make a living hopefully make the market a better place it's very very difficult in other countries most of the exchanges are run by the government is that true oh, so yeah. isn't LSE an e-
0: independent entity
1: I believe the LSE is independent, so you, you caught me on that one already. Uh, <laughs> but, but I know Hong China Kong...
0: and Hong Kong are just totally different animals. Right. There's no, right. Although you would think Hong Kong would be the closest thing to a non-government entity that China
1: I happened has. To, to be at a conference there a couple summers ago and gave a little presentation on market structure. And the big buzzword then was kill switches. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating to me because they had a, a person from the Hong Kong Exchange talking about it. And he says, kill switch? Are you kidding me? Who knows what the person that I'm turning off, what resources they have, what other trades they have, what position they have. We're an exchange. We're not the broker-dealer. We don't have the understanding of their financial wherewithal. We may be forcing them to take incredible losses with a kill switch. They were terrified of kill switches. Well, over here we're talking about everyone should have a kill switch and be able to flip at any time. You got to be really careful with these things because the unintended consequences can really be an issue.
0: That that's that's quite fascinating. Um, my favorite two questions uh, okay. in the last few minutes we have. Right. So, uh, a recent college grad, a millennial, comes to you and says, "I'm thinking about going into finance. Uh, I, I'm interested in trading. What sort of advice would you give them?"
1: Uh, so. Back to your question about why I got involved. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be an easy way to make a living. <laughs> Big mistake. Surprise. Right? So fully understand that whatever you earn, you're going to have to work very hard for. Even though it appears that you can show up and... Mr. Citadel and trade from your dorm and create billions of dollars. How many people get to be? It's a very rare event. Kevin Griffin. I mean, you're
0: talking. You. It's funny because people talk about Jim Simons or they'll talk about um, uh, Stevie Cohen. These are real outliers. These are one in a hundred million personalities. These aren't like, hey, let's all become traders and become billionaires. It's like
1: being Steph Curry or Michael Jordan. That's right.
0: The odds are so overwhelmingly stacked against you that unless you are unusually gifted... (laughs) I I did an analysis on this exact subject some years ago Mm. looking at how many kids were high school athletes. Millions. And then how many of those high school athletes become college athletes, which is a single-digit percentage. Mm. And then how many of those college athletes actually get to enter the draft... Again, a tiny, tiny percentage. And those people who go on to be in the draft, how many of them actually have a career? Forget Stephen Curry and Michael Jordan. Earn a living as a professional athlete. So when you go back to that original pool Mm -hmm. of high school athletes, it's such an infinitesimal number. And it turns out on the trading side, it's even smaller. The Jim Simons and and Steve Cohens and Kevin Griffiths are like – Rarer than the Stephen Currys and, and Michael Jordans. It's, it's amazing. Agree. And so... So the advice to a millennial would be what? Uh, well,
1: <clears throat> hopefully you're smart. Hopefully you're willing to work hard. There will always be capital transactions. There will always be mergers and acquisitions and corporations that need advice around financing and currency exposure and interest rate exposure. Find an area that you really love understand it as well as you can probably spend some time with someone who's doing what you think you might want to do so have an apprenticeship if you will get into a training program get a taste for it and then decide if it's really for you or if maybe you want to go back to business school and look at industry or something else other other options i tried to my son happens to be in the business I Actually tried to talk him out of it. He wouldn't listen. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, anyway, it's worked out for him. But it uh, it is very captivating and seductive to see the opportunity. And when you had those days where you caught a trade and you make two hundred fifty dollars without a lot of effort, you know that was a week of painting, painting houses when I was. That's exactly in college, right. right. That's exactly and right. You sit there and you go, well, gee, which would I rather do?
0: There's something about working with your hands that's satisfying, although I I prefer working in the garden (laughs) once a week than painting houses. My last question, uh, and one of my favorites, what is it that you know about investing, about trading, about market structure that you wish
1: you knew 40 years ago uh, when you were setting out on this career? So when I was studying in the markets, um, I actually had Burton Malkiel Efficient Market Mm -hmm. Theory Random walk down Wall uh, Street. Random walk down Wall Street that had been published just a year or two before I took his course. Um, I was a big believer of that coming out of school, looking at 30 or 40 years of the markets. I think he's right. They're efficient around the edges. They're efficient because you can't necessarily pick the ones that are going to win right. and lose. But I hear well, a coming. The the markets are also psychologically driven. Mm-hmm witness the internet bubble which sure. i lived through traded through it was fascinating to me at one point in 1999 end of 99 early 2000 some of the most brilliant minds were totally confused so the the biggest hedge fund guy's one was a chronic short one was a chronic long neither one of them knew what to do with their portfolio because prices were in this new dimension. Mm -hmm. Well, it turned out there wasn't a new dimension. It was just that we thought there might be. So there are dislocations in the market. There will be times when having a level head gives you an opportunity. And the only way to really participate well with that is to not be levered. So it's leverage that has killed us, both in the recent crisis and in the past crises. Don't overextend yourself, thinking that you've got the answer to where the market's going to go or what's going to happen. Again, Warren Buffett tells a great story. If you'd invested $10,000 with him in 67, 67, it'd be worth whatever it is, tens of millions today. If you had invested $20,000 and borrowed 10, so if you did it on margin, you would have been out of business.
0: (laughs) That's fascinating.
1: So, So. sometimes options and futures and all that kind of stuff i i like to say it's for people who want to get there in a hurry but they may not know where they're going right so it could work out but it it also could build a lot of characters the way i used to talk about my losing trades
0: the um the buffett quote i remember and i'm i'm sure i'm mangling this about leverage was you know dumb people should never use leverage and smart people don't need to use leverage <laughs> right. so there that that works that well Keith, this has been absolutely fascinating. I appreciate you spending um, so much time with us on this. We have been speaking with Keith Ross. He is the CEO and chairman of PDQ Enterprises. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes. You can see the other 90 or so of these uh, conversations we've had. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, uh, who is in charge of producing and booking our show. Charlie uh, Vollmer is uh, our producer, Colin, my engineer. Michael Batnick is the head of our research. Uh, who helps put these questions together. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.